Okay, we are we are in Acts chapter 17. And I'm going to recount for you a few things and go much faster than we're, you can look at Scripture. I'm just going to rattle off some Scriptures so that if, if you want to write these down or if you ever want to go back to it, they'll, they'll all be on the message which is online and posted. But you may remember that, that uh, Paul was with his traveling companions in, in uh, Thessalonica. And they had to leave. There was, there was some legal thing, and, and it says in verse 9 of that chapter, they received a pledge from Jason and the others, and they released them. So Paul never returned to, to Thessalonica after that. There was some agreement. He had wanted to return, but he wasn't allowed to. And then they went to Berea, which we also covered that as well. And then from Berea, the, the attack came from Thessalonica, and they had to flee. To uh, Paul had to be taken uh, uh, and escorted to Athens. So let me, let me just say that um, uh, in 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 and 18, it's, it talks about how Paul was unable to return uh, uh, to Thessalonica. So a lot of what we learn about what's going on behind the scenes, we learn in the letters that Paul wrote to these different cities. And then in 1 Thessalonians 2, 14, and in 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 5, and then also in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 and 7, talks about the suffering that the Thessalonians went through and how Paul told them that the suffering would come. He also talks about in Philippians 4, verses 14 and 15, how when he was in Thessalonica, the Philippians had sent him a gift more than once for his support. Uh, Till then, Paul had worked with his own hands in Thessalonica. uh, in, in, uh, and this, t- this is mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, and 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 7 through 10. And then in, in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, it talks about how Aristus and Segundus will later accompany Paul to Jerusalem. These are two people that are saved in this period of the ministry. Uh, in Acts 27, verse 2, it talks about how Aristus accompanies Paul to Rome. Um, and then in Acts 20, verse 4, one of the believers from Berea was one of the people that accompanied Paul to Jerusalem. So it doesn't specifically name him in this little passage, but later on it tells us that he was one of the people that was saved at this time. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 1, Silas and Timothy joined Paul in Athens. In 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, From Athens, Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica. In Acts 18, verse 5, Silas was sent to some other part of Macedonia. And then in Acts 18, verse 1, Paul went alone to Corinth. Silas and Timothy returned from Macedonia to meet Paul in Corinth. And that's in Acts 18, verse 5, and 1 Thessalonians, verses 3 through 6. And then from Corinth, Paul wrote 1 and 2 Thessalonians. So while he was in Corinth, he wrote this. And then also it talks about how when he was in Corinth, his mind was very much on, what, on the suffering that was going on in, to the Thessalonians because of their having believed in the Lord. And that he talks about in 1 Thessalonians 2.17, verses 3 through, uh, and then continues on to 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 9, so that entire portion. So, anyway, I just give you that because some folks like to be able to follow all the events that's happening, that are happening at this time. And the Bible actually spells all these out. There really is no, no lapse there. And so it it, it is clear in the Scriptures. But let's pick it up from chapter 17, verse 16. Paul in Athens now. Now, Paul was waiting for them in Athens, 
his spirit. So, so let me just pick up in verse 15. It says, Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So you see, Paul went alone to Athens, but he asked that they send Silas and Timothy right away to help him out. Verse 16, Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be proclaiming a, a, be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus. Uh, uh, Saying, many, may, saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Okay, so Paul's experience now in Athens is a bit different in that this is the first time we're going to see him openly professing to Gentiles. He had spoken to Greek or non-Jewish believers in synagogues, predominantly because he followed consistently this pattern, and he does again in Athens, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel was first to the Jew. Every city he went to, and even when he was rejected, the next city he would start all over again in the synagogue. And so, in verse 16, while he was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he observed the city full of idols. So, he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. So, during the, the Sabbath day, he would reason with them, with the Jews. But then, also in the marketplace now, we find him reasoning with those, speaking with those who happened to be present. So in 16, his, his spirit was, was provoked. The, the uh, New International Version, I think, says was greatly distressed, right? Isn't that what it says about his spirit? was greatly distressed. It was seeing this city full of idols. Now, idol worship to Jews was no longer a problem in Judaism. It was a real problem prior to the, the uh, Babylonian captivity, which came in about 600 B.C., after the Babylonian captivity, they were 70 years in captivity, part in, in, in Babylon, part in Persia. A portion of them came back. Never was idol worship a problem again in Israel. God really broke them of that. The rabbis taught very clearly after that, this got us in big trouble. Although it had been commanded in the Ten Commandments that they shouldn't have idols, idol worship was a real problem prior to the Babylonian captivity. After that, never was a problem, and to this day remains no problem in Judaism. There is no idol worship. But idol worship was very popular among the Gentiles. Very popular. And uh, uh, this was disturbing him in his spirit. But you see what he did as a result of this disturbing him he would go and he would start to reason with them about what this meant. And that's what we're going to see in his sermon on Mars Hill in just the next portion. But there was something that disturbed him about their behavior, namely idol worship. That did not cause him to say, oh, these stinking Gentiles, idol worship, and just you know, walk away flustered. 
nor did it cause him to pronounce a railing judgment against them, but it caused him to share with them. Let me say what we people today, Christians, are too quick to do. It is to see people caught in some sin and cast some railing judgment against them, rather than to do something like speaking to them about it. And he never cast a railing judgment against them. He came against the sin that they do and tried to reason them with them to say, this is why it's wrong. But this was very much the sin that was in their face. And this is the sin that he approached them with. It is very easy when you travel to another country to see things that are foreign to you because it's a foreign country. And then to make judgments and say, why, why do people do this? You know, this is just terrible what these people do. I assure you it is very easy for an international to come to the United States and pick out many things that our culture does that isn't at all godly. But you know how, much it, how frustrating it is to have an international come here and just pick on this, 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 this. I mean, in the same way... They perceive that, that from us when we go to their countries. So rather than pick on things, Paul said, this disturbs me. So rather than walking around criticizing how terrible it is, he begins to address it. But he doesn't come at them. He says, look, it is this sin that needs to be dealt with. And so it, it was heard in verse 18, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. The Epicureans were, were, were the, the, the direct opposite from the Stoics. The Epicureans believed that, that uh, um, uh, you should seek enjoyment in life. That's the highest thing you can seek. Whereas the Stoic philosophers were very much that you should seek reason. Reason was the ultimate. Whereas the Epicureans were, were, were uh, uh, pleasure was the ultimate. So both groups were conversing with him. They were speaking with him in the marketplace. Paul was not afraid to engage the people of his day. As believers, sometimes we make groups and we say, oh, those people are just so lost, not even bothered, don't even bother talking to them. Paul engaged all the groups of his day he was willing to engage with. He was willing to speak with them. He didn't just say, oh, you know, th this group of people, you know, scientists, they're just too far away, you could never share with them. No, he shared with the reasoners of those days, the Stoic philosophers. He shared with the pleasure seekers of those days the Epicureans, the, the, the total opposite groups he was sharing with. He engaged them in his generation. This is what we are called as believers to do. We are called to engage with them. So it never bothers me that Christians would go and you know, speak to this person or that person. There was a, one time a person was in this class and he was just passing by this palm reading house, this house that had a big palm on it. And, and he said, I, I just really felt I had to go in there and share so he went in there and he shared with this palm reading lady and then her husband came out and he started sharing with her too. And they invited him back and he shared with them again. He was moved to do this. He didn't just say, oh, they're palm readers. Let's just leave them alone. They're just too far gone. No, he was moved to do this. This is a good thing. Paul engaged the people of his day. And this student didn't you know, need me to stand alongside. He just went in and did it. It's not going to mess him up. I, would, I, I never fear that people are going to get you know, messed up if they go sharing. If you are part of a local church and you're part of a local body of Christ, you can share with whoever you want. It's going to make you stronger. It's going to make you a better person. It's going to make you a, a, a stronger Christian 
to open up and to share. The thing that strengthened me most early on in my Christian life is that the, I lived in the discipleship house in college and the, the, uh, uh, the assistant pastor who was over that discipleship house used to make us, that means make us, go door to door preaching. And so we would have to go up and down the neighborhood in which we lived and knock on doors and, start, and just start introducing the gospel. And we would go two by two. To this day, I look back upon that and I say, this is, this is what taught me boldness. And then he would have us stand up on campus, the campus on which we attended, and open air preach. This made me very, very strong. And so after that, you know, you do that a few times, you're like, I've just made a total fool of myself. I've got all caught up on my work. But after that, everything is easy. It's all easy after that. This was a good thing. It's a good thing to do. And so, so Paul engaged the people of his day. And look what they say about him. They said in, in verse 18, some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? The word there is, is, is picker up of trash, this rag picker. What would this rag picker like to say? But instead of Paul reacting to that, remember what we talked about maintaining, as Spurgeon said, one blind eye and one deaf ear, letting things go by? He didn't just say, well, don't they know I'm a very trained rabbi? Don't they know that, you know, I'm starting all these churches that God has sent me? They're going to call me a rag picker, you know, a dumb garbage man. I think I'll just leave. You see, he didn't let offense get in his way. <clears throat> Sometimes unbelievers can say very mean things that are offensive, and we want to just go away and curl up and suck our thumbs and say, well, they'll see on the day of judgment. But Paul you just let the thing go by. He just let it go by. He said, rag picker, that's fine. And, and uh, uh, he just let it go by. And then look at what he was preaching in verse 18. It says he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That is what he was preaching. Jesus said, I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. He preached Jesus, and he preached the resurrection. Every time he preached the resurrection, as we're going to see, people got turned off. So you wonder, why did he keep preaching the resurrection? Oh, because it's true. That's why he spoke of the resurrection. And that is what made it very, very different, that this man was alive now. And it says that they were, he was teaching strange deities. You know, talking about strange gods. And so they brought him to the Areopagus. This is an open forum. And you had a council there. And they wanted to hear this, what he had to say. Because it says they were bringing, he was bringing something strange to their ears. And they enjoyed hearing something new. This reminds me of the time that we lived in California. You could go into the bookshops uh, and... and uh, you know, someone was in there, you know, they'd, they'd have some poet there speaking or somebody new there playing some music and, and, and everybody, you know, you know, after the poet would share their poetry, you know, they'd sit there, you know, they'd, they'd all clap. And, it, you know, these people got this enlightenment from sitting around and hearing something new. This is what it reminds me of. So they invite Paul up to this hill and uh, uh, they, they give him a, an opportunity to speak. So look in verse 22. So Paul stood in the midst of the Oropagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. 
The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all men life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one. For in him we live and we move and we exist. And even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think of the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear more of this again. Uh, We shall hear of you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them also were Dionysius, the Arapagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Okay, so Paul is brought up to this hill and he begins to share. Now remember what happens. If a new religion is introduced, that you can be killed for. Socrates was killed for that, for introducing strange new ideas. And Paul was well aware of this. So look at the genius behind Paul. Paul says, in verse 22, he first of all says, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. Now, that word religious, that particular word that's used in Greek, can be read in two ways. The Jews used that word religious, they used that word in the sense of idol worshippers. The Gentiles used that word as being religious. Now, we have the same problem today. You can say to some people, you're very religious, and they'll take that as a compliment. You say that to some Protestants, you know, you're very religious, and they go, I'm not religious, I have a relationship. Okay, sorry. You know. But, you know, the Bible actually does say, the last verse of, of James chapter 1 says, says uh, uh, true and undefiled religion is visiting orphans and widows in their distress and keeping oneself unstained by the world. So, there is a scriptural basis for calling somebody religious. But do you know what I mean? Sometimes when people say you're religious, you try to say, well, you know, for me, it's, it's more than religion. It's a relationship and this and that. It can, be, it can be thought of in two ways. So if somebody says to you, you're religious, you know, to a Protestant, that, that, that can be you know, a put down. In the same way, it could have been read two different ways here. But Paul comes in here and he knows how they're going to receive that word. He says, I see you are religious. So he he speaks one word of praise there to them. This is not a bad way to start out when you go sharing with somebody. Rather than lay right into them, just say, "That's, that's good what you do. What you do is good. He says, while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. That's the genius. I am not bringing a new teaching. What you worship in ignorance, that statue right there, there's no statue, just, just, just the platform to an unknown God. I'm here to proclaim that to you. Boom! He's legally covered now. If he had been introducing some strange new teaching, they would have a legal case against him that could result in death. 
He says, nothing new here, guys. What you worship in ignorance, I'm here to proclaim to you. And it wasn't, there wasn't just one platform there. Apparently there were many platforms that said, to an unknown God. And then he quotes no one in this whole thing. You know, to the Jews, you see how he witnesses to the Jews. He uses the Old Testament, and he uses scripture after scripture from their own scriptures. He has a different way of sharing here, because the Old Testament meant nothing to them. The Torah meant nothing to them. Why use that as a basis? What he did is he used as a basis something very different the way he preaches to them. In fact, the only quotation he does here is he quotes one of their own poets who said, for we also are children of God. He quotes this poet of theirs. This is the same poet who said that, that uh, um, uh, uh, all, all Christians are lazy gluttons and liars. That same poet said that. Paul quotes that later on in the Scriptures, that same quote. He says, he says, as it is said, all Christians are lazy gluttons and liars. And, 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 uh, um, and then Paul follows it up with, and that testimony is true. I mean, Paul said it like it was. He just condemned the whole people group. You know how politically incorrect that would be today? But this is the only guy he quotes, is one of their own poets. So you see the genius in this. Not only this... He takes something from their day and he uses it as a springboard for the gospel. This bothers Christians. It bothers Christians that how dare you take something that's, that's, you know, some ungodly term and put it in your preaching. But, you know, it's not totally wrong. You see here, Paul did it. You know, there's there's this this common thing that, uh, you know, I I put this ad in the paper in the university and Crusade has done it too, that... that, uh, uh, you show this guy with earrings or something, and you say it says, uh, "Body piercing saved my life." And you use that, and people start reading that, and then they read about, you know, Jesus was pierced through for our transgressions and how it saved my life. And so believers will write to me when I put, "How can you use body piercing saved my life as a lead-in to talk about Jesus being pierced?" Well, how could Paul say, you know, that that missing statue right there? I'm here to proclaim it to you. I mean, that's even worse than the body piercing saved my life. You, you see what I mean? So he used the terminology of the day to draw people in. And he used something to just get them encouraged. You know, it's something Shireen told me that when Billy Graham came to Pakistan, when, when, when Shireen was, was young, so, so Billy Graham comes and he, he, he comes to, to Pakistan and he says, he says, uh, 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 when, when God was, was making the Africans, he left them in the oven too long. When God was making the Americans and Europeans, he took them out too early. But the Indians and Pakistanis are just right. You know, now, this is silliness. But all of a sudden, this is what the girl remembers all her life. Because there's this word of praise. Do you see what I mean? So he comes in there and he speaks some word of praise to introduce to people, some word of praise is not a bad thing. Paul uses, he says, I can see you're religious. Good for you, you're religious. And he uses that as a lead-in. And you could say, Paul, why would you say that? Their religion was idol worship. Well, Paul says, you know, I'm just breaking the ice here. I'm just trying to become their friend and breaking the ice. And so that's what he does. He says, and then he says, this is what I'm proclaiming to you. And then what does he do? He starts shredding and dismembering idol worship. 
he goes directly at this sin of idol worship. You say, well, why, why doesn't he just talk about you know, God's love, God loves you? You know, once we get them saved, then we'll kind of, you know, one by one get rid of their idols. Why address this head on in the Oropagus? Because you have to address sin head on. You must. And Paul hits them with this. And he starts going through, he says, it's, it, it, this is, he doesn't dwell in your temples, he dwells in no temple made it by hands. I mean, this is a tremendous hit to them. God doesn't dwell in our temples? No. Then he says, he's not served by human hands. You don't do anything to please him with your human hands. They thought, the Athenians thought that they were a special group of people that raised up from one man that no other race was from. And he says in verse 26, no, every man is from the same race. And he says in verse 27, you can find God because he's not far from you. And then he says, he, he says uh, uh, verse 29, being then children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all people everywhere that they should repent because he's fixed the day of judgment through one man, Jesus Christ. He hits their sin head on. Let me start hitting some of your sins head on. So you know what it feels like. As long as we're addressing somebody else's sin, yes, let's address their sin. What do we struggle with? Because to put on the robe of righteousness, sometimes the fig leaves got to be removed first. If we're going to be cleansed, you have to address sin. has to be. And as believers, we have things that we deal with. And Paul came smoking hot right at what their sin was. And we're very excited about having other people's sins exposed. What about our sins? Jesus said in Matthew 5.28, Whoever looks upon a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. That is the verse that convicted me of my sin when I was preached to. The first time when I was told about the gospel. And to this day, that verse needs to resonate in the hearts of young men who struggle with pornography. That if you look upon a woman to lust after her, as far as God is concerned, you have committed adultery. You say, well, how can I commit adultery? I'm not even married. God considers it adultery. That's the, what He considers it. And there is victory over this. And you can say, well, you know, I'm just kind of made this way. You're not made that way. God didn't make you that way. It's sin that has taken you that way. And, there, and, and you can try to excuse sin all you want. But there is freedom in Jesus Christ. Dinah, one of the daughters of, of, of Judah, of, of uh, Jacob... It says that she went in, verse, in Genesis 34, verse 1, she went flirting with, with uh, the people of the land, flirting with people that she was never supposed to, and in the midst of that flirting, she got raped. And not that the rape was her fault, but the flirting certainly was. There's a flirtatiousness that takes place, and, I, and, and you say, well, what are the biggest sins that I can identify in the church today? I don't think it's drunkenness. There was a day that it was drunkenness in the 1800s. It is not that today. The biggest sin that I struggle, the biggest sin that I see men and women struggling with in churches today 
is immorality. Men flirting with secretaries at work, women flirting with other men around, and this is the biggest struggle in marriage. And you say, well, you know, I'm not married, I don't struggle with it. Well, what do you struggle with? Women today, many believing young women who are not married, start dating or think of dating men who are not Christians. If your dating is not discerning what is for the future, in other words, why date if this is not, not for the future? A relationship. You're looking at a relationship to see, is this the long-term relationship that God has me in? If it's not the long-term relationship, let me get out of it because it's going to hinder the ultimate long-term relationship that He's going to have me in. This is what dating is for in the sense of discerning, is this the person that God has for me? And in that, don't let it be just your decision. Get input from people around you. The Scriptures always did. Your parents are a good source. And then there's the, the, this, this yearning very often that, unbelieving, that believing women have for an unbelieving guy. This is wrong. It is a direct contrary to 2 Corinthians 6.14 that says you're not to be unequally yoked. Spiritually unequally yoked. You are not to be. Paul hits them with their sin right on. There are sins that confront us. And will we deal with them? The Bible clearly says in, in, in Romans, it talks about how in Romans chapter 6, that we are slaves to sin. You are a slave to sin. It is only by repentance and obedience to God that we can be free of it. Repentance doesn't just mean saying, God, I'm sorry. Repentance does not mean sorrow. Repentance means sorrow com- coupled with turning. It means a 180 degree turn. You're going this way, you turn this way. That is what repentance means. It means that when I identify that problem, it is not just saying, God, I am sorry. It is saying, God, I am sorry and I am turning this day in another direction. Paul says, I am calling all men everywhere to repent. And believing woman, you keep praying for that unbelieving guy, you're going to start loving that unbelieving guy. Just offer a prayer for him and let someone else pray for him. It is not your job to be sharing Christ with him and praying for him every day. If he's an unbeliever, let someone else do it because your heart will very much come coupled to his heart if you keep praying for him every day. Because something powerful comes in prayer. And so he confronted them and he says, there will be a judgment. And I have seen there's not just a judgment of the great white throne judgment that believers thankfully may be spared from. But there's a judgment that comes in this life even from disobedience to His Word. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse, 20, verse 36, Matthew 12, 36, Every careless word that men shall speak, they will render account for in the day of judgment. By your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. Every careless word that men shall speak, they will shall render account for in the day of judgment. By your words you shall be justified, by your words you shall be condemned. There are struggles that people go through. And there is no ability to overcome sin without Christ. You can try all you want. And that's why the unbeliever is incapable of overcoming their sin. It is only in Christ, and it talks about this in Romans chapter 6, only when you become a slave to Christ and obedience to His Word can you overcome sin. Without Christ... You cannot overcome sin. You are a slave to it. 
Paul confronts the sin of their day head on. And then he says, he says, there's a judgment that is coming. And he has demonstrated that this man who's going to judge, and you say, well, Jesus doesn't judge me because I'm a Christian. Why don't you look in the book of Revelation? It was Jesus who came knocking on the door. And he didn't come knocking on the door to say, oh, sinner, come in. He came warning them, saying, you're going to burn up here if you don't change your ways. It was very much to the church. Church after church, he went to. And he confronted them with their sin. And he said, I will spit you out of my mouth if you don't change your ways. I mean, that's pretty clear. As loving and as as merciful as Jesus is, he says, in me is victory. And if you don't choose it, you're going to be caught in it. If you're caught in internet pornography, there is a way out. And you can't just say, well, this is the way I am. That is not the way God made you, and that is not the way you're to go. And sin is not an accident. You don't fall, fall into it. Sin is not a mistake. It is not a lapse in judgment. It is calculated. It is calculated. I will go here to this computer, and I will start clicking on these pictures. It is calculated. In our minds, we calculate sin, and we do it. We visit people we ought not to visit, knowing we'll end up in bed with them. It is calculated. And this is because our hearts stink and they are wicked. And this is why we need a relationship with Christ. We need openness with Him to proclaim it. We need openness and relationships in the body of Christ. And we need accountability. When I speak this word, a word like this, not to a college class, but to a general church audience where most of the people out there are married, many of them are married multiple times, there is great conviction because they feel that, because they know what goes on in their marriage, they know what goes on in relationships and the flirtatious relationships at work, and you think, oh, well, you know, I'm not married, it doesn't matter. What you start now has big effect on where you will be later in your relationships. And you start dealing with it now. Jesus confronts sin. And if there's anyone here who is an unbeliever, you are incapable of overcoming in this area. You can try as you might, but you will be incapable of it. It is only at the feet of Christ. And I have women contact me that their husbands are just bound to this pornography on the internet. Just bound to it. And they say that that all husbands do it. All husbands do not do it. And they're just just in this, this pain and turmoil. Because of what their husbands are caught in. You deal with these issues now or you will carry them into your marriage. You don't stop with pornography just because you you walk down the aisle. You deal with these issues now. You deal with these issues of flirting around now. You deal with these issues of desiring unbelievers now. And you learn to turn, which means repent and turn and seek Him. Sin is easy when someone else's sin is confronted. But there are areas in our lives we are to take every thought conscious to the obedience, every thought uh, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The Scriptures say. So what I do with my mind, what I think about with my mind, when I address a woman in my mind, that is wrong. That is sin, and it must be dealt with. I am to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought, even, is to be captive to the obedience of Christ. 
And there are things in relationships between a young lady and a young man that you cannot do because it arouses something in you that was never made to be aroused. The scriptures tell us, do not arouse or awaken my love until it's proper time. And you start getting, getting all cuddly with somebody of the opposite sex, your love will be aroused before the proper time and it is very difficult to stop. And the war will start going on in the mind and then it will be manifest in the body. And this is why you stop, you, you stop this before it even starts. And you make decisions in relationships that we will not go beyond this point. I will hold your hand, but that is it. I've known believers even to say, I don't even want to hold their hand. That's the decision they've made. That's up to them. You draw the line. But you know your line. What brings you into a point where it, it, it's, it's aroused or awakened your love and you want to go further. And so you draw the line now, early on in the relationship, immediately. Hey, this is who I am. I'm a Christian. I don't want to do this to you. I don't want to end up in bed with you. I don't want to end up putting my hand where it is not supposed to be. So we have to put boundaries on our relationship. Where and when we will be alone. What we, where we will put our hands. Where we won't put our hands. You put boundaries on relationships. That is a good thing. To not do that will arouse or awaken your love. And remember, there is a judgment that comes. Whatever we think, whatever we do, there is a judgment. Not the great white throne judgment, but there is a judgment that comes. It comes in this life and it comes in the afterlife. Repentance means turning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you, Father, that Paul called out the sin of that day that was provoking his spirit to a point of great distress. And he named that specific sin. Father, you know the sins in my life. Father, I lay them at your feet. Father, forgive me. And let me turn, I pray. And Father, I pray for each one of these young people that they would start to move in a direction that would call them into a new life. Father, I pray for unbelievers who are incapable of overcoming in this, that they would first come to know you and then see the victory that can come in Christ, the victory that is there. And Father, for these believers, that they would sense and know the victory that is there in Christ. Father, for the young men struggling with internet pornography, pornography Father, I pray that they would walk in, in, in accountability with another young man, that they would set up their computers to, to be set, that it would give that accountability to another, another partner in this. Father, I pray that you would do that. Father, I pray for these young women that their hearts would be true to you and true to your word, that they would not seek in practice or even in thought to be unequally yoked. And Father, that you would open up for them the proper relationships. And Lord, I give these young people to you. Father, Cause them to seek your face, I pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen.